Hey, I'm Danny Levy, and you're listening to Digital Transformation and Leadership. This is the show where we go behind the scenes with today's top business leaders to understand how they're digitally transforming their company. This week, I'm joined by Stephen Sherman, a member of IBM's Data, AI, and Automation division. Stephen, welcome back to Digital Transformation and Leadership. Thank you, Danny. Always lovely to chat with you. I wanted to get you back on the back on the show. The last episode we'd done all around artificial intelligence had a had a fantastic response. Lots of downloads, people getting in touch saying how much they enjoyed the the episode. So I was really keen to to get you back on for round two. Oh, that's great to hear. Um, you know, obviously, when I have the opportunity to speak, firstly, if you hadn't realised, I like to talk. <laughs> but more importantly, is to, is to try to put the topic into layman terms. Um, um, the in- whole industry of technology, uh, unfortunately, it's filled with acronyms. And mm-hmm. o- often there's this presumption that, you know, we think that everyone knows what these acronyms mean. So, I mean, my objective when I have the opportunity to share and, and talk about topics is to make it as simple as possible and ultimately to tie it back to our daily lives mm. uh, as consumers and or as, you know, the organization. You know, what does this change actually mean? So it's, it's great to chat with you again. I know that, you know, we all often talk about some really topical issues which are, you know, paramount to our daily lives these days. Just just um, before we get into the topic today, for anyone that missed the last episode, and I clearly encourage you to go and, and listen to the, the episode I did with Stephen uh, on artificial intelligence if you haven't already. Um, but for anyone that missed the last episode, would you be able to just quickly introduce yourself? Sure. So I have been living and working in Asia-Pacific now for 30 years, currently residing in Singapore. I work for a very large tech company called IBM, which I'm sure many of you have heard heard of before. And I specialize in the area of data and artificial intelligence. Uh, I'm fortunate to be involved with the National University in Singapore uh, teaching this topic. And teaching it, again, not from a technology standpoint, but more so from an adoption application and leveraging the power of technology to drive artificial intelligence solutions, machine learning, etc. And all of this relates, of course, to the most important thing, data. I mean, everything is linked to data. Data is the important commodity, commodity here. And d- data belongs to each and every one of us. We need and should take an interest in our personal data, how it's being used, how it's being managed, how it's being accessed, and how it's being shared. And today and we're going to talk um, around payments. Um, again, it's an area which uh, touches a lot of us in terms of how we how we transact. It's it's become even more um, uh, frictionless uh, uh, in terms of how we pay through the the health pandemic. In terms of we've all been remote and we haven't been going into locations where we used to be able to pay in cash before. Um, transactions are getting a lot faster and, and a lot is changing both in the kind of corporate and in the consumer world so I was really keen, keen to get you back on and, and talk through this very big topic with you. Yeah, p- payments is a core component of this digital transformation mm. and there is no doubt because of COVID what we have seen over the last 18 months is a couple key indicators. Firstly, the nations or cities, countries that have very advanced digital platforms and providers that give you access to services which you can pay for 
were able to adapt and survive through COVID very effectively. Mm. The countries that had these types of platforms in place also managed to survive the pan or, uh, uh, pandemic much easier. What do I mean by that? So I, I can't recall in our last chat, Danny, but I, one of the examples I often refer to, one of the first nations heavily impacted by COVID was Italy. Yeah. Now, at the peak of the pandemic, when people were locked up at home, if you wanted to, of course, you know, we have to eat and get food. I mean, that's a basic life necessity. Now, one of the challenges that Italians had were, if you logged on, firstly, to find a service online was somewhat challenging. Secondly, if you could get onto a website that delivered food, etc., I mean, the waiting time was incredibly long to get the product. I mean, I heard stories between two, three, four weeks. Now, if you're stuck at home, waiting two to four weeks is hardly instantaneous. Mm -hmm. So it was very difficult. You know, the statistic I have seen and read is 4% of Italy is online buying products and services. Now, conversely, where, where you and I live, Danny, yeah. from home, we can, we can buy almost anything online. Uh, I've become an absolute digital um, consumer on yeah. a daily basis. Yeah. I'm buying everything from food to drinks to you know books, mm. etc., all online. And I get most of these products within hours, worst case, 24 to 48 hours. Mm -hmm. So that is what we have seen because of COVID. So payments is a key part of that. Yeah, absolutely. And in terms of in terms of payments at the moment, um, we we talk a lot around kind of the ease of payments, making it as frictionless as possible. Um, you don't really want to think about it, do you? Especially as a consumer, but also as a business, because that last kind of part of the process, that transaction process, if people get that wrong, you potentially you lose that business. You'll you'll go somewhere else. People just expect to be able to. To click I hate to say it they want that kind of Amazon type experience don't they where they go on and it's one click and they've they've bought the product well what is it that you think companies are trying to do at the moment around kind of borderless and, and real-time payments yeah so there's a couple elements here so you use the reference the Amazon effect I mean the other one you hear is the uber experience yeah. so consumers younger people than me um, I'll say younger, I won't say how much younger, but <laughs> younger people, um, they have grown up in this environment where there's this expectation, I can go to a website, I can buy something, and I simply click, and it arrives. In, in some cases, there's this, you know, um, percep not perception, there's this expectation, it must arrive within 60 minutes, you know, mm. two hours, etc. So the, the expectation is incredibly high. And a lot of these services have been delivered by startups and fintech companies we've seen them all across the world in southeast asia i mean there's a whole bundle of them in every country in singapore there's also even a government focus and support to drive the establishment and success of fintechs so that's what's happened now the more traditional companies you know continue to operate how they had and they realize they have to transform so hence this term digital transformation mm -hmm. so they are delivering services that have been very antiquated if you want to use this term but they realize it has to be quicker and online now traditional companies because these organizations have been heavily regulated and monitored 
they understand that they have to transform, but at the same time, there's certain things that need to be in place. You know, how do they manage the data? How do they secure the data? What if scenarios, if Danny's personal data gets, you know, lost or stolen at that last mile during payment? Mm. There's a lot more focus on the traditional companies because they have been and continue to be heavily regulated. I would suggest in the fintech space, they've had the luxury to rapidly grow, provide a service, allow consumers to pay with far less regulations uh, because they're startups. But that is definitely changing now. Now, coming back to the consumer, all we care about is, uh, you know, I don't care that this company has regulations. All I care about is I can buy something and pay for it. Now, if something happens, of course, I complain. And that's where regulations come in place to protect the consumer. But this is what's currently playing out in the marketplace. This, you know, this payments element and borderless, which you use the term borderless. You know, mm -hmm. I don't care if I'm buying something from China, from Indonesia, within Singapore, etc. All I know is I go to a website, I pay for it, and that good and service is delivered to me. Um, so that's quite amazing when you think about it. You know, what, what are those pieces in place? to get that product to your doorstep, but you open the box and you enjoy what you've purchased. I think you're right as well. People don't really, we no longer make that distinction, do we, around, okay, the product's coming from overseas. Often we're on these marketplaces or these platforms, aren't we? And we're just we're just transacting. We're not even thinking of, oh, it needs to come from here. Unless at the last, the last part you see it's going to take two weeks to arrive or a month to arrive, you may then sell it to check it. Well, it's, it's even a little bit more crazy than that mm. because of my, my personality. I do sometimes check mm. and because of what I do. But, but when you check, you're also surprised. And what do I mean by that? So recently I bought um, some specialized glasses mm -hmm. uh, to pour whiskey into. And these were designed by a very well-known Japanese craftsman for glass. So mm -hmm. obviously you assume, and it's confirmed, it's this particular craft artisan that's designing these glasses. I go into the website, it's fully in Japanese, I select the glasses I want, I click on the types, I pay, orders in process, box arrives. Uh, I then look at the box, I open the box, I look inside, I look at the labeling on the box. It turns out the box has been delivered directly from a glass factory in China. Mm -hmm. So here's the point. The landing site may be in, in Japan. The, the company, or the, in this case, the artisan, is truly Japanese. Um, it's all bona fide and so forth. But the back end piece, how the product is put together, how it's packaged, how it's delivered, maybe from an absolutely alternate location, which, you know, unless you check, you're not even aware of. You open the box, you look at the glass, that's exactly the glass I wanted, and I'm happy with the quality, and it's excellent. It's my Japanese glass when in fact it was put together by a certain factory that they worked together with from China. Mm. So you just see how integrated all of this is. And, you know, it's not tr not really transparent to us unless we go and check. All yeah. we care about is we're buying something. Absolutely. What's in it for me? And um, in terms of um, um, payments and regulations, you mentioned that it's, it's quite a regulated space. Sometimes innovation can be quite hard in the payment space. You mentioned that fintechs are a bit more kind of free to, to get on with things. Um, do, you, do, you think, do you think that's slowing down innovation or do you think there's ways in which companies are, are able to work around and kind of navigate um, the regulations that are thrown at them? Well, it's really interesting. So 
if you look at the Asia-Pacific region, mm-hmm. and if you look at specifically at Australia, which is a very mature market in terms of the banking sector, um, for many, many years, you know, the banks in Australia have delivered a service in a certain shape and form. And then you've had, you know, the explosion of fintechs and so forth, and real-time payments, which has driven customer expectations that if they go online, they expect ABC. Mm-hmm. What's happened in Australia over the last two to three years is very interesting in the sense that the regulator has come in and said, uh, banks, you know, the big four, Mm. there's going to be a certain standard in Australia now called the National Payment Platform, NPP. And basically, NPP dictates that the banks must comply with these new payment standards. And these new payment standards are they must deliver a real... real-time payment system Mm -hmm. and ecosystem they must provide this customer experience which is on par and equivalent to a fintech whereby your customers can go online and procure services and pay immediately so what's interesting for me is you've seen what because of what fintech has done it's driven changes in regulations in the traditional banking space so that's really, really interesting. And the banks now are complying and changing mm-hmm. the manner in which they deliver services to the customers, which is great because in some other countries around the world, and I tr- used to travel a lot before COVID, I mean, you look at the customer experience with the banks, it's yeah. very, very traditional. Mm. You'd be lucky to get a mobile session to pay for something. Whereas, you know, you see in our part of the world, because of fintechs, you're seeing that banks are being pressured to transform, you know, this terminology, digital transformation. And that's fundamentally what's happening. On the flip side, you know, so you, uh, fintechs are continuing to be innovative. You know, you're seeing a mm-hmm. lot of mergers. You know, if you look at Indonesia, Tokopedia and Gojek have merged. They're a massive um, uh, online company now delivering all types of services. But, you know, so there, there continues to be innovation in the fintech side. But undoubtedly, what you're starting to see as well is because their ecosystems are getting bigger. Mm-hmm. There is more transactional revenue in these ecosystems. And of course, what happens is when there are more customers in these types of payment platforms, you undoubtedly get criminals focused on these types of ecosystems because there's lots of money there. So mm-hmm. customers are at risk customers potentially could be exposed and because of this backdrop regulators have to come in and look at the situation you know are these ecosystems well designed are they protecting the consumer in the event that there is a compromised you know customer or customers you know what are the ramifications to these uh, you know these uh, the people who own these ecosystems what is the protection to the customers so you're starting to see regulators to look at these new types of companies and how they should be regulated. And, and I mean, that, that's a natural evolution. Uh, at some point when there's critical mass, you know, that's what the, ro- the role of the regulators are. It's not to slow down innovation, but it's more so to ensure that people are protected, mm. be it may the individual consumer, the company, the ecosystem, and ultimately, remember what I talked about, your data. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. And in, ter- in terms of um, getting it wrong or maybe kind of falling into some common traps um, in terms of payments, is, is there anything that you, that you see or you observe 
um, either from the kind of the banking side, the fintech side, or, or more or in terms of kind of consumer or B two B payments. Yeah, I'm going to say something controversial <laughs> about the security space here because, okay. um, you know, traditionally what has happened in the banking space is okay, you launch products, you launch a new service, and what happens is there is a security breach, and mm. these happen. You know, every couple year or so there, there's, there's a security incident customer data has been stolen someone's intruded on the network personal data has been sol- stolen you know regarding your consumer database uh, there's been an attack on an ATM I mean there's a whole gambit of these types of security incidents yeah and typically what has happened historically and this still happens now is the bank's reaction to this type of um, situation is go and invest in more security products and Mm -hmm. and please don't get me wrong here of course that's important so what happens is they will go and buy more network intrusion products they'll buy more on on peripheral on the endpoint security they'll look at application security Mm -hmm. you know if you talk about online services and payments they will look at encryption products authentication products all these type of things you know that consumers will use to do online sessions the interesting part of all those types of approaches is it's a very um well you use the term yourself friction Mm -hmm. what 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 they introduce immediately into the into the the session or into the the experience is immediate friction Mm -hmm. and they do that because they're ultimately trying to protect the customer and the reputation of the bank so you understand this but ironically, what happens is all that introduction of friction is completely different to the experience that you get going onto an online ecosystem to buy, you know, a pair of shoes, mm-hmm. some some plates for your kitchen, you know, some alcohol, whatever service you're buying, which there's very little you know, which you see security. So the question then is, okay, is my, is my session on one of these payment ecosystems secure or not? I mean, there's very little security. There's no authentication. Whereas the bank has me to have with a token, it's giving me an SMS, it's calling me up, etc. Um, so, so that's what's playing out at the moment. So coming back to my comment about banks, how they've traditionally approached it, yeah. the, more fo- the more forward-thinking banks are now looking at ways uh, to approach security differently. It's not about buying more security products. It's looking at the data which is being used you know, so for Danny, you know, um, mm. what data do we have on Danny? You know, Danny has how many accounts with us? He has a D, uh, an ATM card, you know, a debit card. He has a credit card. He does online banking with us. He occasionally goes into the bank branch. So we have these customer sessions that, that we engage in work. You know, we uh, engage with Danny as a customer. And based on that data, they can very you can very quickly appreciate and understand how you are as a customer and how you behave. You know, where do you typically uh, log on? At what time when you mm-hmm. do an internet banking session? What ATMs do you typically use, if any at all? How often do you use your credit card? What type of products do you buy? What is the amount of your credit cards? Do you use your credit card for uh, you know transactions outside Singapore online? So you're buying things you know that might be in Malaysia, in the US. So you start getting a very clear picture of Danny as a consumer mm-hmm. by looking at that data. You're very quickly able to determine 
what is normal behavior unless you're a compulsive shopper you know you could argue that's abnormal behavior but you know what is your normal behavior versus anomalous behavior you know, what would be something quite unusual mm -hmm. suddenly on danny's credit card or banking session that he logs on he's buying you know 50 kilos of coconuts from trinidad and tobago i mean that would be a bit odd and yep. that's a very silly silly example <laughs> the smarter criminals would be you know masking a transaction that almost looks almost looks like your behavior mm. which would require further investigation to realize it's a little bit odd because the timing of the transaction is not typical to when you do something where you're buying from is a bit strange the merchant which you bought from has been flagged by other systems that this merchant has been known to have dubious behavior etc so rather than throwing all this security at trying to solve the problem, you're starting to look at the data and the behavior. And that's mm -hmm. the type of work that I'm involved in. Um, yep. Data can be absolute gold to understand someone's behavior as opposed to throwing more security at something. You know, you can build fences and lock everything down. You still may not catch, capture the, the person you're trying to catch, nor would, do you truly understand what's going on. So that's yeah. the balancing act. Yeah, so it's, it's using the data to actually... Um, create kind of personalized approaches to individual security rather than painting everyone with the same broad brush correct which then becomes very heavy and slows people down and makes the system kind of difficult to use correct yeah exactly exactly and you know and believe it or not you know we are all very unique and different the challenge lies of course are coming back to this data data unfortunately now is not all centralized in a central location you know You've heard about these mammoth projects over the last three, four, five, ten years. Let's build a data warehouse. Mm -hmm. Then it was a data lake, <laughs> and then on top, you know, layered on top of these, you know, central data repositories, you know, was all these analytics to run in yeah. queries and insights. What did the data mean? The challenge we have now is data isn't typically centralized anymore. It's you know at the border, you know, at a branch, at an ATM. At a mobile device at a consumer that has three different ways he connects to the bank or to the shop so data is fragmented in many different places you know so how do you get that data together to have these and make these decisions so that's that's the really challenging part here mm -hmm. without impacting the customer experience and and this is what is really really interesting for me is you know, it's very easy to get caught up in the fear factor, you know, sell the fact that you've been attacked, mm -hmm. you've got to buy all this security to protect yourself. Selling fear is always easy. I mean, um, we could, you know, use the analogy or example what's happened over the last 18 months, all the fear around COVID. Yeah. If only there was as much uh, news reporting on the amazing work that's been done on the vaccine and other stuff, I mean, mm -hmm. we would have a more balanced view of things. So likewise, you know, selling the fee and buying more security is tip the typical approach as opposed to, you know, how can we be smarter to make the right decisions ultimately to give this fantastic customer experience? Yeah. And that's what's really important, yeah. which I think often is, is often forgotten. Mm. And so I think, you know, the organizations, the companies, the individuals that have their online shop that, shop that can deliver this customer experience with this level of security and insight are those that are going to win big here. Okay. Because that is truly a different way of delivering a service and how they manage their relationship with you ultimately. Mm -hmm. Yeah, super, super interesting. So if we if we take a step back for a second then from the kind of 
the corporate viewpoint. Um, what about people? When it when it comes to people, um, and you've got all these fantastic different ways that you can now transact. Um, it's it's borderless, like we've discussed. Um, um, you can pay in real time. You're getting things um, very quickly. H- how does it empower kind of people? Yeah. So you know, again, it it comes back to to data, mm-hmm. and, and the thing here is. You opt in to be part of an ecosystem, be it may, you know, um, an ecosystem in Singapore that sells all sorts of products, Mm -hmm. an ecosystem uh, like Alibaba in China, an ecosystem, you know, wherever in the region. So firstly, you opt in. And why do I use this term opt in? So, I mean, knowing if you opt into this ecosystem, how is your data being collected? Mm -hmm. How's it being managed? How's it being secured? And how's it being shared? Now, I think a lot of people don't fully understand this. Um, so, you know, it's important to understand this. You know, if you opt in, this is what's going to happen with your data. Now, if you if you're okay with that, you know, I always find it really interesting. You want to use a service? Mm-hmm. Do you agree to the terms and conditions? And you read this really long thing, and I I, yeah. I laugh because. If you don't accept those terms and conditions, well, you won't be using the service. So of course, you're mm-hmm. going to say yes. If you say no, you're not going to use the service. But do you truly understand what's going to be done with your data? Now, if, if you understand and you are agreeable to it, that, that's fine. Um, the challenge here is because we're talking about borderless, you know, there's all sorts of issues around where does your data reside? Mm-hmm. Um, how's it being secured? Uh, data sovereignty. So, you know, for example, a bank in Indonesia customer data cannot reside outside Indonesia. Conversely, this is the same with many other countries in Asia South and Mm -hmm. and countries in other parts of the world. So, you know, this is the the big question here. Um, We're talking about borderless payments, but where does the data reside, you know? And questions then come to you as an individual. Am I comfortable that my data is residing in the cloud in this remote location, which is not in Singapore, you know, that may be acceptable to me. It may be, wow, that's kind of scary and that freaks me out because who else could get access to that data? So these are the questions, you know, everyone needs to walk themselves through. And and then, of course, that comes to that is those providers, you know, what are the regulations around how data is being used and so forth. But this whole sector on data regulation, I Mm -hmm. think this is going to be the big area of focus for all the you know the regulators across the region because we're not talking about a, a single location anymore yeah it's far more complex than that mm. it's it I, I guess as well the regulators need to kind of work together do they when it comes to the kind of cross-border data is, is that how they need to tackle it or is it something different you you would you would hope for hope yeah. for that so i mean you know is there evidence to, to suggest this will and can happen? So I think the, the best example, of course, is the European U- Union. So mm-hmm. in the in the EU, they have GDPR. Yeah. So you know, so G- GDPR is very much to address these concerns about how data is being mm-hmm. used and data privacy. I would suspect, you know, you will see other countries. So for example, in Singapore, uh, for those of us who are in this space, we know for a fact. Um, as an interim landing point, we refer to GDP, GDPR in Europe as our reference point and, our, and as the minimum standard. Yeah. I would suspect, and you're already starting to see this, you know, other countries are adopting GDPR from EU. 
but mm-hmm. also adding certain things that are specific to their country. So, you know, c- coming back to inter-regulatory working together, discussions and initiatives. So I'm you and I, Danny, reside in Singapore. So mm-hmm. perhaps this is a topic which ASEAN will dis- discuss, yeah. you know, between Singapore, Malaysia, Philippines, Indonesia, Thailand, Myanmar, etc. So I'm certain this is one of the topics because, you know, fintechs, operate across this region and how they share and use data with common customers. Um, you know, it's it's interesting. Who would have thought three, four years ago, um, inter-government meeting, this would mm-hmm. be one of the agenda items. We're going to talk about data uh, <laughs> of our population. And we think, yeah. well, what do you mean you're talking about data? What, the date they were born? No, a yeah. little bit more than that. <laughs> um, so it's interesting. Very, very interesting, yeah. And, and I mean, when we talk about Asia, um, you can't really ignore what's going on in China, I mean, in, in, in many ways, um, China's so far ahead um, of the rest of the world, not just in, in Asia, but the rest of the world as well. Um, and, and they're doing a lot of very interesting things in, in many different sectors, um, across e-commerce, um, high tech. But when it, when it comes to payments, what are you observing coming out of China? Yeah, so... You're 100% correct. It's very hard to ignore the elephant in the room. Mm. So, you know, for those of us who've been to China, um, I'm sure you've experienced this. From the moment you land, you get into a taxi, you get to the hotel, you go to a shop to buy something. It is very much a digital economy. I personally have had experiences and instances where my credit card would not be accepted and or my cash would not be accepted. So those of you who still believe cash is king, believe me, this is not the case in China. So that's mm. point one. Uh, in respect to China, the development of these payment companies and these ecosystems, I think it's a very, very interesting case study to look at because you know there's a couple of very key things there uh, worth observing and learning about. So firstly, Unless you're living in a big city like Shanghai and Beijing, etc., access to a bank uh, was not is not for everyone. Many Chinese who don't live in the big cities up until recent years didn't even have a bank account. Okay, and so just just put that into perspective: a country of 1.3 plus billion people, so X percent of that had no access to banking. Um, they were living in second, third tier, fourth tier uh, cities, uh, never had a bank account, never went into a bank branch. And if they went to a bank branch, then here's the thing, if you had a bank account, you went into a, a bank branch in one of the major cities, you'd be standing in a line for, for a long time to get a basic service. Mm-hmm. What happened with the fintech space with the likes of Alipay and WePay, et cetera, these big you know, Chinese payment companies a key fundamental disruptive uh, factors. So what happened was is consumers suddenly had access to a payment system and mechanism. You had a noodle shop in a small provincial town, you were selling noodles and customers could turn up via a QR code and pay Danny directly for the bowl of noodles. Mm-hmm. So just imagine how fundamentally positively impacting that is to you as a small business person. You can suddenly collect payments which get reinvested into your business. So suddenly across China in the last recent years, 
people all around this nation of 1.3 plus billion people have the ability to start up a small business and collect payments. This empowered millions and millions of Chinese people. So people often talk about, you know, what's been the big disruptive force in the Chinese economy. I would suggest this is the most impactful in recent years, which has moved millions of Chinese into the middle class. Secondly, these ecosystems, suddenly what happened was there was access to microfinancing. In the past, remember what I said, you could not, many of them did not have bank accounts, did not have relationships with the bank. So if you wanted to start a business, you couldn't. You couldn't go to a bank and say, I want a, a personal loan mm -hmm. because you didn't have an account with them. You didn't, you didn't have a history with them. You didn't have a record with them. They didn't know who Danny was. You know, mm. you could be a really nice person, but why would I give you a loan to start a business? And this is, you know, this is the, the issue globally in the developing yeah. world. You know, access to financing is the keys to the mansion, to the car, to education, etc. So what suddenly happened in these e payment ecosystems, there were businesses or microfinances that started providing microfinancing to these small business persons that suddenly were able to start up their businesses. So that's what drove the Chinese economy, empowering all these people in the lower that became middle class, etc. Incredibly exciting. However, what did happen is typically what happens in any economic model. Mm -hmm. A lot of this small financing and microfinancing became a ticking time bomb. It became basically a pyramid scheme in, in China. And there was money being loaned with no checks and measures in place, and it was just a card waiting to fall down. And that's when the Chinese government intervened. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, already a lot of damage had been done. A lot of people went bankrupt because eventually, you know, the pyramid scheme started falling over because money wasn't being fed back up the chain. The Chinese government intervened, immediately put a, a stop and, you know, and checks and measures in place. Um, so it's important to note this. Fantastic disruptive technology, important access to money and payments, which is critical to economy. And then thirdly, the intervention of government to regulate risk and impact to consumers. And the reason I mentioned that that last point and those three points, you know, as a people, you know, those, the naysayers, you know, who talk about China and, you know, it's all these things going on. They're not mm -hmm. innovative. They're stealing ideas. Well, firstly, that story suggests a lot of innovation, which you don't see anywhere else in the world happen. Mm -hmm. And the fact that the government intervened to regulate. And that's what you're seeing now which is playing out, I would suggest, in the Chinese economy with these big startups or these big fintechs, there is increased scrutiny to look at how they're being regulated because they themselves are now become equivalent and or on par as the big banks. And that's why the regulators and the government is looking at them closely. So, so that, that's my interpretation. I'm not an expert on China by any means. I've been many times there. I have Chinese relatives. I have many friends that live and work there, but that's my observation and my comments regarding China. Um, Stephen, fantastic breakdown. I appreciate you you, you talking me through that. Um, I know you mentioned you're not you're not an expert, but in your opinion, what is it what is it in China that kind of, especially in the bigger cities, what why why are they able to be so far forward? from kind of other developed economies in terms of payments, but also just more technology in general? 
Well, a couple of key things. So remember, we the, the constant theme that we've had in this discussion is mm. data. Mm -hmm. So those startup companies, the luxury they've had is is access to incredible amounts of data. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're talking about data that you, you just can't get your head around. So, so that basic building block has been the ingredient for these companies to be very successful to design services and experiences that are very much customized to individuals. So mm -hmm. that has been crucial. And, and so, you know, so why has that happened? Well, for those of us who've been in China, you know, they live in a society and a type of government whereby, you know, data is collected and used. You know, they, it's, they accept that as the norm. There's no wrong or right here. You know, some of us come from nations where it's a very different situation. You know, we uh, have the right to comment how our data is collected and or being used. Mm -hmm. And, you know, ironically, that perhaps is one of the biggest challenges that we see in other countries. The, the richness, the wholeness, the volume of data has impacted the ability to build these very sophisticated, customized services. So that's one data. Mm -hmm. The second thing is, you know, um, these startups, it, so this is just interesting again, so, you know, talk about, oh, China doesn't innovate, but if, you, if yeah. you look at, you know, for those of us who've been in the, the WePay ecosystem and the, conversely, you know, the Alipay ecosystem, you know, and you look at, you can enter this ecosystem and, and do literally, and I mean literally, anything and everything without ever leaving that ecosystem from mm -hmm. booking, you know, taxis, hotels, buying food, chatting to friends, you know, paying bills, paying your colleague for something that you owe the money or going to a noodle shop. You know, the, that ecosystem has been so all encompassing that once you're in there, you don't want to leave. So that level of innovation inside those ecosystems, I've seen nowhere else. And, and here's the very interesting part, all driven by a QR code. When the Chinese startup said they were going to use the QR code mm -hmm. as their reference point, you know, basically to click on and basically, you know, that's where you enter and you pay for your service and so forth. Many Western companies all laughed at that QR system, outdated, antiquated, old technology. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that was basically the response that yeah. was said. Now, what's very interesting, again, I use the term ironic often this morning, is if you look at the tracing systems for COVID around the world, most of them are use QR code now. Yeah, well, it's become, when you step into a restaurant, you've got yeah, to Yeah, so it's become very, code, very obvious. It's become very obvious and evident that the QR code, in fact, has a lot to offer. Mm. Now, the QR code, so coming back to your, your fundamental question, why has it been successful? Yeah. Access. Access has been so simple. Scanning a QR code has made getting into the system and buying and seeing whatever you want as simple as possible, as opposed to getting to a website, typing in your name, putting in your credentials, using a token, getting an SMS, getting a phone call, a simple QR code. And they've made it so simple, the onboarding system, to go and experience, procure and engage it's made it an absolute no-brainer. Mm -hmm. So the, they're the two things I would suggest, you know, the, the data, the richness to, to customize these experiences and the onboarding system to, to access these services. The QR code, you know, has been 
<laughs> incredibly successful. So again, if you walk around China and you're starting to see this in Asia everywhere, even in mm -hmm. Singapore, QR codes popping up everywhere now suddenly. Mm -hmm. Well, you know what? This QR code actually is actually a really good idea. It's not silly old technology. No, it's almost blending old with the new, isn't it? Because you can Correct. just very easily you click and then without having to think about anything, you're taken directly to where you need to be. As opposed to, Correct. like you said, having to jump through hoops, put in passwords, put in OTPs, remember another another piece of information, download an app. Nobody wants to do that anymore, do they? They just want, to, they just want that one click. Correct. Yeah. Correct. So that speaks to the term, you know, frictionless, which you used yeah. so well um, yeah. earlier. So, so they're, they're the two things. So, so, so China continues to evolve, and and you know, in many ways, you could argue that's why, you know, from the onset, they've been able to monitor and manage, you know, the the COVID pandemic because you know access to data using the QR code tracing. Uh, etc and access you know to services during the lockdown has made the management of you know the pandemic far easier as opposed to other countries yeah yeah fantastic breakdown and so when it when it comes to to payments where, where do you think we're headed what, what do you think is going to happen or play out in the next kind of two to five years well, I, I think, you know, it, it's kind of interesting. So, you know, who's innovating? So I, mm. I was, you know, very sarcastically, you know, saying that China doesn't innovate. So in many ways, I think what we have seen in China over the last two, three plus years, we're starting to see play out in other parts of the world. So if you look at Asia South, mm. um, you know, where we reside, Danny, if you look at Indonesia, the merger or acquisition between Tokopedia and Gojek in Indonesia, you look at the services which they have together and the type of ecosystem they could potentially provide consumers, mm -hmm. I would suggest is going to be very similar ultimately what you get in a Chinese ecosystem. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I think what we will start to see are these virtual ecosystems in, you know, around the world in certain countries and the more progressive thinking organizations will be not only one country, it will be across nations that you will log into basically to um, buy and procure products and services and pay on those platforms. Um, you know, so digital currency, I, I guess that that's what I, I, I'm getting to is ultimately what this is, is driving. You know, is digital currency going to be the norm as opposed to us carrying cash in our pockets yeah. now you know in europe the most advanced as it pertains to digital uh, currency is sweden mm -hmm. uh, you know, there are a lot of places in sweden now that simply will not accept cash and it's really difficult for the elderly because you know they're still very used to it. i think i'm one of the elderly because i always like to have the feeling of you know my wallet in my pocket and some coins um mm -hmm. You know, younger people uh, just don't do this anymore. They carry their device, which they have digital tokens of digital currency, which they pay uh, between their friends for bills and so forth and or third party. So I think that's where we are going. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think it's that's where we're heading. Um, there's no doubt in my mind. Yeah, I'm the same. I, I went to work um, last week. The offices uh, reopened here in Singapore and I was dropping my daughter and I had a had a had a moment of panic because I realised I'd left my my wallet at home, 
Um, and I was just amazed how easy it was. I know we live in Singapore, but I have an Apple Watch as well, but uh, Apple Pay, um, Grab Pay, ordering a taxi, everything within the Grab app. I, I didn't even need to think about the wallet at all from, from, from that point onwards for the rest of the day until I got home. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, so, so that, you know, that, that example that you've just given <laughs> yeah. is, is obviously playing out in different forms and levels of advancement respective to the country that we live in. You know, some mm. countries are more advanced, more sophisticated. Uh, others, you know, are starting to explore and discuss this. Um, you know, and, and there's a whole bunch of, you know, potential positives around this. You know, you will see um, money being digitally tracked and captured. So in the sense, you know, tax evasion, you know, you would expect, you know, the government is able to collect better, which then can reinvest into the economy. Mm. Um, you know, but again, balanced against that, you know, people are basically going to be logging into systems where their personal data and information is being collected also. Yeah. Um, but, you know, here's the thing. Do you, do you intend to be a member of this type of society or do you decide to, to, to say, I don't want to be a part of this type of society? And, and unfortunately, I think if you decide to opt out of this type of society, you may be living in a cave trying to make a fire with sticks and hopefully, you know, a, a, an animal walks past it, you can, you know, capture to eat because yeah. you will not be able to survive. I mean, this is the unfortunate reality. So the thing is, I often say is, okay, you can't opt out, but what can you do to influence how this is being driven and how this is being put together? You know, if you do have concerns about data privacy, mm. what are those concerns? How can we construct that ecosystem in the right manner? that our data is protected and how it's being used, you know, do we need to be told if our data is being shared? So, I mean, that's one of the big things with GDPR. If any company decides to take Danny and Steven's data and mm -hmm. sell it to someone, they have to disclose that. So here's my point. Rather than opting out, I think it's far more important for us to engage and to be part of this ecosystem and help design the rules of the game. How will our data be used? As opposed to letting other people decide what will happen, I would prefer to have a stake in, you know, if you're going to use my data, tell me, and then let me mm. be the judge mm. of how it's going to be used. Yeah. So, you know, how those rules get established, I think is really important, and we need to be members of that discussion. Yeah, so make, making sure that you've got a seat at the table and you're participating, Correct. rather than being kind of um, pulled in different directions and not sure what's going on, and then, and then kind of having to react at the end, which is never helpful. And And... When you say ecosystem, Stephen, and you kind of were alluding to the fact that, you know, more, more ecosystems will come up like what's happening in China. Do you mean in terms of things like um, WeChat and, and WePay in terms of how these kind of super apps are evolving or is it something yeah, different? Correct. Okay. C correct. So, you know, the, the question is, will we see the likes of WePay and WeChat um, become prevalent in Southeast Asia, as an example, mm -hmm. or will we see homegrown competitors um, be established? So I think what's playing out at the moment is a combination of both these things. So if you look at both those two very large Chinese companies, mm. uh, over the last year and a half, two years, they have definitely invested heavily, heavily, sorry, um, into Southeast Asia, yeah, uh, they've built they've built data centers, they've set up offices, you know, that they're, they're recruiting, etc. So they've definitely um, 
landing and planning to be very uh, aggressive in terms of having a presence in this part of the world. Alternately, you know, um, there are local players that potentially could build up build these super apps. You know, will they be able to compete and so forth? I guess the question is, you know, um, do they have a better understanding of the local market? You know, at, in, in theory, you would suggest and think that they do. But again, those insights is going to be how rich is their data set going to be? So the fact if you look at Tokopedia and Gojek, the amount of data that they're bringing together, you would you would assume that data that they have now consolidated would be somewhat significant as opposed to when they were standing alone. They're having much bigger insights into the same customers that were potentially uh, using both um, apps previously. There's still quite a way to go, isn't there, for for most company, uh, countries? Sorry, to even come close to to the ecosystems in China, but you can see anyway here locally, um, companies like Grab in terms of what you can do on the app now uh, versus maybe a few years ago where it was just ride hailing. You can order food and you can shop and you can, you've got your digital wallet. So if they if they make a few more upgrades and implementations and, and add other things, good partnerships, you could see that yourself spending a lot more time within the app without ever having to, to leave. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, why would you why would you want to go out of that ecosystem, that super app, if you can do something else there? I mean, that that's ultimately what they're trying to do, you know, that yeah. you enter that ecosystem, that super app, and, you know, anything and everything that you need and want is in that super app, including yeah. your friends which you converse with. So, you know, it's, you know, it really is... Um, yeah. you know, a virtual world and somewhat mm. frightening in the sense that, you know, you're living in an environment which there's nothing physical in front of you, but everything's there, you know, to sustain your life yeah. other than breathe. Yeah. So I always find it strange that Facebook never quite got there or they haven't done it yet because they acquired WhatsApp, which many people use in terms of instant messaging. But again, that's kind of separate or apart from the Facebook platform, which then has its own messenger service where you'd think if they kind of combine that under one ecosystem, they've got marketplaces. I don't know, but obviously <laughs> it's a difficult one. Well, you you, you are you, you probably will recall Danny, yeah. and I can't recall the exact time frame, yeah. but you know, a year plus year ago, they were yeah. talking about a digital currency as yeah, well, remember? Yeah, I remember that. So, you know, you could potentially guess and stargaze, you know, those particular moves and those steps. Mm. Uh, were they trying to put something like this together? Um, mm. You know, I don't have insights into Facebook, but you know, mm. those little pieces, as you rightly say, are components of these super apps mm. in, in China. Um, you know, they had all these pieces together in place for quite some time now. Um, so yeah, it's it's quite amazing. But it, but again, you know, there is no wrong or right here. I, there's pro and contra in the sense that, you know, if you look at Southeast Asia or South Asia, hmm. the ability to empower disenfranchised, you know, people that don't have access to cash and money to better their lives, this is a massive, massive opportunity to develop the, these people's lives for better things. But at the same time, balanced against that is, you know, who's going to control this data? How will it be used? How will it be managed? How will it be secured? And how will it be regulated? Um, you know, I think we're lucky in the sense that there are many people having this discussion now. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so the chances are, you know, this will be designed in the right way. But if it's done in the right way, it has immense positive contribution. I mean, it, as I said, you know, if you look at the economic development in China, 
There is no doubt in my mind these super apps gave access to people that never would have had financing or banking facilities or payments ever in their lives before. And they would have been mm -hmm. struggling day to day in their lives. So it's so it has immense positive impact and payments is a key part of that. You know, all of us do something in a service ultimately to be paid. We don't do things for free. So if you can be paid for doing something, that has an absolute positive impact. Yeah. Fantastic. Stephen, I've, I've really enjoyed uh, round two with you again today. Um, Love the conversation around around payments, what we discussed around kind of real-time transactions, data, um, some of the implications there and, and the, the, the super apps conversation and the kind of landscape in China, how it's empowered people there and, and how the government kind of thinks about technology and, and, and making sure that these these big super apps like WeChat and, and WePay um, uh, can 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 be there, but also um, how they're not you know too dominant in terms of regulation, and then uh, what the future might look like. So so really enjoyed the conversation once again. Um, for anyone that didn't uh, catch it last time, how can people get in touch if they want to find out more? Yeah, um, I assume Danny, you're going to share my contact details. Oh, well. um, so that's fantastic for those of you who think I don't respond to messages. <laughs> um, believe me, I do. So please reach out to me. You know, it doesn't need to be, you know, okay, I, I would only call Stephen because, you know, we have a project or some work. I mean, that's not the case. I think it's really important. You know, us speaking together helps design and have those important discussions that need to be had. So if you want to reach out and you have an idea, you have a concern, you have a thought, your organization's doing something, who they should speak to, whatever the issue is around data, payments artificial intelligence machine learning please reach out you know if i don't have the answer i will find someone that does have the answer but the key here is working together sharing information and having these discussions i think is really important we're in an exciting time uh, if anything one of the positives out of covid which what has shown us is digital transformation is accelerating faster than ever and it's important that we understand what this means. So please reach out. Yeah, it's changing at a, a lightning pace. Every every week there's something new. So yeah, definitely get in touch Correct. with Stephen to, to find out more. Stephen, thanks so much for coming on Digital Transformation and Leadership once again and, and sharing all the, the insights you have with the listeners. I've really enjoyed it. Fantastic, Danny, anytime. It's always great to chat with you. You've made it to the end of another episode of Digital Transformation and Leadership. If you're enjoying the show, please do leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. No need to leave a written review, just clicking on the five stars is enough. I'd really appreciate it as it helps the show get found and it helps those listener numbers grow. And we'll be back again next week when we will again go behind the scenes with another top business leader to understand how they're digitally transforming their company. The Digital Transformation and Leadership Podcast is a Blue Aurora media production.